If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses really uh, 2 through 13, but we'll go ahead and read verse 1 again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. How do we evaluate who we follow? How do we go about deciding, all right, this is the one, this is the person, this is the man, this is the thing that I am going to follow, this is what I'm going to set my life toward. It seems like every week we get a new story of someone who is not worthy of being followed. Politicians doing shady things, coaches putting themselves above the team, pastors abusing their sheep, abusing their flock, abusing the church. It never seems to end. I, uh, I'm a big podcast guy. I listen to several podcasts every week, uh, and one that I've been listening to a lot lately is called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's a podcast put out by Christianity Today, and it's chronicling the rise and fall of this specific church, this specific pastor. His name's Mark Driscoll. He was a megachurch pastor in the early 2000s who was wildly popular. He had a church that had dozens of campuses. There were 50,000 weekly attenders. He was speaking at conferences. He had book deals. He had money. He had power. He had as much power in evangelicalism as you could probably get. And then eventually, one day, it all came crashing down. Word came out that he was abusing people in his church, that he was... Um, verbally abusive to them, that he had a leadership structure with no accountability, that he was using the church to, to puff up his own status, to fund his own endeavors. He had grown powerful and rich and wealthy off of the church, and he was eventually fired because of the way he treated people and the way he had set up a system to remove all accountability from himself, to get as much power, as much control, as much wealth as he possibly could. And for all the people in that church, when that happened, everything came crashing down. The church no longer exists. The campuses have split off. They have either become their own things or they no longer exist. Everything came crashing down when they found out that they were following a man who was not worthy of being followed. He wasn't worthy. And that gets to the core of the question that we should be asking when we try to find out who are we supposed to be following. We should ask, is he worthy of being followed? We should think very hard and take very seriously this task of finding who we're going to follow, of finding one who is worthy. In some sense, in a lesser sense, you should be thinking about that with me. I'm a man. I'm not Christ. 
You don't follow me in the same way that you follow him. But in some sense, you should follow me as I follow him. So you should be sitting there thinking, is that guy worthy of being followed? Should I care when he speaks? When he opens up the Bible and tells me what he thinks it says, does that matter to me? That's something you should be thinking through. And just to, to spoil it for you, in a lot of ways, I am not worthy of being followed. I am a man who is very, very flawed. More than you will ever know. If you are following me, if you think that I am the answer, I'm not. I'm just not. I can't bear that burden for you. But luckily for you, we have one who can. We have one who is worthy of being followed. Rather than following any mere man, myself included, your goal should be to follow Christ. You should only follow me, follow any man, any person, to whatever extent that they are following him. Because he is the only one who's worthy of it. He's the only one that's worthy of being followed. And from the beginning of Mark today, Mark sets out to try to show us three reasons why you should see Christ as worthy of being followed. First of all, Christ was promised. You can see that in the, the first eight verses. The first reason you should see Christ as worthy of being followed is because he is the promised one. Jesus didn't just show up one day. He was foretold from the beginning. His arrival is the climax of all of reality. From creation forward, everything was pointing to Christ. We get explicit promises of God that Christ would come even as early as Genesis chapter 3. We get to see that the Messiah is going to be the one who comes. And when he comes, he is the fulfillment of God's promises. Christ is worthy of being followed because he was the promised one. He was expected. Let's look at the first three verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I sent my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He was expected, he was anticipated throughout the entire history of Israel. Even creation itself was groaning, waiting for him. And throughout all the scriptures, everything is meant to point to Christ. Mark makes that connection crystal clear. He says, as it is written. He said, those Old Testament prophecies, those things that you have read, those things that are written, they are speaking to Christ's coming. This beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that Mark is setting out to write down. Nothing he's about to write should be a surprise to one with eyes to see when they're reading the Bible. The, the as it is written that he attributes to Isaiah, it's actually a combination of three different verses. One from Exodus, one from Malachi, but the bulk of it comes from Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse 3. He's making a connection between the prophecy of Isaiah and the coming of Christ. Isaiah 40, we're going to read uh, the first five verses. I think Alan will have that up on the screen. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places the plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
What Mark actually quotes is verse 3 in that passage, but his allusion is to the whole of that passage. Really, his allusion is to the whole of the Old Testament. But he's zooming in on Isaiah chapter 40, which is the beginning of a chapters-long section within the book of Isaiah, which transitions from God proclaiming judgments against the people of Israel to him proclaiming his promises and deliverance to the people of Israel. Isaiah 40 is the tipping point. So those first verses right there is how he begins to speak comfort to the people that he has already said has judgment coming for them. Mark's point isn't only that John, in his coming to prepare the way of the Lord, to cry out in the wilderness, to speak toward the coming of Christ, that he's not just saying that he's fulfilling the the prophecy of God in verse 3. He's saying that he's pointing to the one who's fulfilling all the promises of God. It's the beginning of the fulfillment of everything that God has promised, and it's all fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the one who has promises. These passages are referring to God, but here they're applied directly to Jesus. That's what's astounding here. Everything in the Old Testament, people would have said, that's talking about God. That's talking about Yahweh. But Mark's saying those promises about Yahweh are about the man, Jesus Christ. The God-man. He is the God from the Old Testament. He's making clear from the beginning that in the coming of Christ, God has come. He's doing all that he said he would, and he's doing it through the incarnation of Christ on earth. That's how he fulfills his promises. A man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So what we should see from that, two things that Mark is showing us about the Old Testament, two truths. One, the same God is at work in the Old Testament as is at work in the New. There is no new God in the New Testament. There is the same God from the old and the new. There's not a God of wrath in the old and then all of a sudden a God of mercy in the new. There's no change in God's mind. There's no change in his plan from the Old Testament to the new. There's no new God. There's no any sort of change in the power structure within the Trinity. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and Christ is God. So when we see Christ, we see God. When you look at the Old Testament, you see God at work. It is that same God at work in the new. Christ is also present in the Old Testament, just as he is in the New Testament. That's the other truth we can see from Mark. When it speaks about the promises of God, they're speaking to Christ. Christ is present in the Old Testament. When you read about the Old Testament and it's talking about any promise of God, it's talking about Christ. When you read in the Old Testament and it's talking about the salvation that's going to come, it's talking about Christ. He's there. The Old Testament isn't something that we just set aside. The Old Testament isn't something that we ignore just because it can be kind of hard to get through. It speaks to Christ. Christ himself said that. He was talking to the Pharisees, and he said, you read the scriptures and think that in them you have life, but the scriptures testify to me. He's saying that the scriptures are talking about who he is and what he's going to do from beginning to end. Christ is the point of the entire Bible. He is present in the Old Testament just as he is in the New. So Christian, let me encourage you today to read the Old Testament. We're preaching through the Gospel of Mark. It's going to take about a year, I think. To get through. So we aren't going to do a series in the Old Testament right now, but we will. We're not just going to set it aside. It's there. It's still scripture. Read it. I know it can be hard, but there's life in those pages. There's life testifying to Christ in the Old Testament. 
Look, I, I've done Bible plans, okay? I know how hard the spring can be. You get super excited in January, you get the creation, you get Genesis, there's a lot of stuff happening, and then all of a sudden you get past the, the parting of the Red Sea and Exodus, and there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of law. There's a lot of numbers in you know, the book of Numbers. And you get kind of bogged down. But whenever you're able to see the entire story as one cohesive message from one cohesive divine author speaking one cohesive truth to Christ, all of a sudden everything starts to make sense. You can see Christ in all the little things. And when you do that, the Old Testament will come alive. That has been one of the most satisfying experiences in my Christian life, has been learning how to read the Old Testament and see Christ there. Because he is. When you do that, your Bible becomes something that you enjoy reading from beginning to end, January to December, every year. You don't have to feel as if it's a slog because there's life in the pages pointing to Christ. His coming was expected from the beginning of time until his arrival. And when he came, the way was prepared beforehand. Let's look at the verses 4 through 6. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. The voice crying in the wilderness from verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord, that's John's voice. He's the one who's coming to prepare the way of the Lord. He is fulfilling the promises of God with the voice crying in the wilderness, pointing to the way of the Lord, which is about to come. He's crying out and he's straightening Christ's path. John came with a message rather than a word. It's not that John doesn't do anything. He does. He baptizes. People come to him out in the wilderness. He baptizes them. But his primary message, his primary ministry is to prophetically proclaim the message of the coming of Christ. He's saying, there's one coming after me. The baptism I give you is just water, but he, he's coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit. You're flocking to me, flock to him. He's crying out in the wilderness, repent and confess, because there is forgiveness for your sins when that happens. That's his message. He's crying out. Even his baptism, it says it's one of proclamation. He appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Generally, you don't proclaim a baptism, you perform a baptism. You, you dunk them. That's, that's what happens. But John is proclaiming the baptism because that baptism wasn't his to give. He has a ministry of a message. And in this way, John's ministry should be similar to ours. What we do is we proclaim the message of God. We proclaim the coming of Christ into the world. We proclaim that by faith and repentance, your sins, yes, even your sins, can be forgiven. There's forgiveness in Christ for those sins by grace through faith. That's our message. And in him crying out, he was straightening the path of the Lord. John's job, what he's hoping to do, is to ramp up the anticipation of the coming one. There's been 400 years of silence. They've been waiting for a prophet. They've been waiting for a message. They've been waiting for the promises of God to come. And now's the time. Now's the moment. So John's whole job is to be Jesus' hype man as he starts coming. 
He says, he's coming. He's on his way. Get ready. Prepare the way of the Lord. He's proclaiming the message of the coming of Christ. He's straightening his path. There had been 400 years of silence, no prophets, no words from God. Only the promise that one day God would send them someone who could redeem them. One day it was going to happen. And that's all they had. And then one day a voice starts crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming. Through confession and repentance of sins, there is forgiveness of those sins. He's heralding out the message of the Lord. He's a new prophet. He looks and sounds like Elijah. His message is one of repentance. He's calling the people back to their God who has not abandoned them. He's telling them their sins can be forgiven. He's preparing the Lord's way. And we can see here that that way, that coming, was sorely needed. Look at verse 5. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. They're being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And in verse 7, he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was sorely needed. The people were desperate for him to come. They came from all Jerusalem, all Judea. They left their towns. You see how they flocked to John? They responded in droves. They went out of their home, out of their town, out of their cities, out into the wilderness. They were confessing sins. When was the last time we did that? They needed this forgiveness. They knew it. They were desperate for it. They traveled to get there. They were baptized. They were hoping beyond hope that this was it. This was the time. This was the moment. They had been waiting for so long for God to fulfill his promises, and they said, please let this be the time. And it was. But when they got to John, he didn't say, all right, cool, you're here, you've got me. He pointed them to something greater. Jesus was desperately needed, and what the people needed was something greater, something greater than man. John wasn't the one they needed. He was there to point to the one they needed. John, as great as he was, he was just a man and he knew that. Look at uh, verse 7. He, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. To untie or loosen sandals was the job of a slave, and not just a slave, a Gentile slave. John is saying, I am not even worthy to be a slave to the man who is coming after me. That was a terrible job, okay? especially in, in the Old World, the Old Testament. Feet were way more gross than they are right now. <laughs> Sandals, way less good than they are right now. And he's saying, I can't even untie them. Notice he said untie, not tie. So that's after use, after they've been worn. He's saying after a whole day of walking around in the desert with whatever on his feet, I'm not even worthy to get those off of his feet, as dirty as they could possibly be. And what's astounding there is that John isn't just some guy. John isn't just some person who showed up one day. John had prophecies about him that we just read. He is the voice crying out in the wilderness. 
Jesus himself said, there is no greater man born of woman than John the Baptist. He's the best man there could possibly be. And his message is, there's one greater than I. And I'm not even worthy of untying his sandals. The people needed something greater than John. They were flocking to him, but they didn't need John because he was just a man. What they needed was something greater than man. They needed the God-man. They needed Christ. And what they needed from him was for him to give them a baptism that was greater than water. In verse 8, John says, I baptize you with water, but he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was a symbol that had no effect. And he knows that. He's saying, look, I can get you wet all day. I can dunk you under the water, but that's just a symbol. I can't give the Spirit to you. I can't baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I can't give you new life. What I can do for you is uh, get you wet and then send you on your way. And that truth is something that we need to always remember when we think about baptism. In this church, through you, these people in this room, it is my prayer that that baptistry is full all the time. That we are baptizing hordes and hordes of people who come to faith in Christ. But when we baptize them, all we've got is water. But God, he's got the spirit. Our goal is not just to have people getting wet. Our goal is not simply to dump a lot of people, to get numbers up. What we want is people passing from death to life in Christ. That's the goal. Not some artificial number of baptisms. Now, hopefully there's a one-to-one -one correlation there, right? Like we're Baptists. We want people to be baptized. If you come to faith, you get baptized. If you are baptized, it's because you've, because you've come to faith. Those should be one and the same. But we shouldn't ever let our zeal for more baptisms replace our understanding of what baptism we give. We can give a worldly baptism all day, but if they don't have a baptism of the Spirit, if they aren't plunged beneath the depths of the blood of Christ and raised to new life in Him, all we did was give them a pretty terrible bath. You've got to remember that whenever we think about baptism. There was a... Uh, I was an intern one time at a church, and I was in a staff meeting where there was like 20 people in the meeting, and they ended the meeting and they said, oh, uh, I'm not going to say his name, person, uh, you've got a funny story, you should tell everybody, they said, this is hilarious, uh, listen, and he said, oh, great, uh, you know how we have a baptism service coming up and we wanted more people to get baptized, so they just called through a list of people and said, hey, do you want to get baptized, and uh, one guy said, yes, they said, cool, and they put him down, and they hung up. And uh, they said a few minutes later, his wife called and they said, hey, doesn't he have to, uh, I don't know, get saved or something before he gets baptized? And the guy said, oh, wait, you haven't done that? The guy said, no. He said, oh, uh, yeah, you should. So then they walked through a prayer of salvation and then the, the guy was going to get baptized the next Sunday. And everyone in the meeting laughed, except for me. I didn't think it was very funny. A baptism apart from salvation is just a terrible bath. Yeah. What we want is for people to pass from death to life in Christ and then to follow through 
and obedience with the first step of baptism. That's what we want. May we never, ever, ever be willing to just dunk somebody so that we can say that we did. We want people to be baptized. But the baptism they need is a baptism greater than water. They need a baptism of the Spirit. John's point here is that he's merely a man who can merely perform an earthly baptism. But the one who will come after him can do much, much more. He can baptize with the Holy Spirit. And only God can give the Spirit. So Christ, the one who is to come, is God. That's what John is proclaiming to them. He's saying if he can give you the Holy Spirit, he's got to be God because God has the Spirit. No one else can give it to anyone else. He's the one who was promised, so he's worthy of being followed. Second reason Mark shows us that Christ is worthy of being followed is that he was consecrated. Look at verses 9 through 11 in his baptism. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Christ was baptized. That's the first step in his public ministry. The first thing he does before he begins ministering to the people on his way to the cross is to be baptized. Now that he's arrived on the scene, he's going to be the main character throughout the rest of this story. We've got the first eight verses where we get a prophecy. It's John the Baptist pointing to Christ. From verse 9 forward, Jesus is the main character and he never leaves the stage until his death. And then he comes back. Christ is the main character, and the way that Mark chooses to introduce us to him, first and foremost, is to see him humbly submitting to baptism. But if you're paying attention, didn't John just say that he is the one who will baptize? That the one who is to come is the one who is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So how can the, the baptizer now be the baptizee and receive the baptism? What Christ is doing here is something that he does several times throughout the book, several times in his ministry, is he's standing in the place of his people. He's modeling, he's showing that they need to be cleansed from their sins and pass to new life in Christ. That he, as Israel, is standing in their place, that he must be washed, that the people need to be washed, therefore he is washed. One commentator this week said it this way, said Jesus does not divorce himself from the sins of his people, but he's bound up with them. That those who are in sin submit humbly to baptism as a representation of what has occurred in Christ. So he is modeling, he is showing them, he is stepping into their place to show them, yes, you must be washed. You must be plunged. And you must be raised. The old self must die, the new self must rise. It was his first step. He's entering into the, the place of his people and acting as they should as a first step in his ministry. So what we should take from that is this should be our first step. Okay, again, we're Baptists. It's on the building. We're Baptists. The first step. When you are saved, you should be baptized. So Christian, your first move as soon as you are saved is to be baptized into the church. Baptism is the first step of obedience in the life of the Christian. You have to be baptized after your conversion to become a member of this church because that baptism is an earthly sign of what has already occurred in heaven. It's an earthly sign and symbol. You have been washed clean by the blood of Christ and then raised into his righteousness. 
You have been plunged. Your old sinful self has died and buried with Christ. And just as he is raised, you are raised. Baptism is a sign and symbol. It's the first step of obedience in the life of a Christian. That the old has passed away and you are raised as a new creation. So I urge you, if you have come to faith in Christ, but you've never followed through in baptism after that conversion, you should do so. Christ modeled it. He did it here. He commanded it later. The early church did it. To do otherwise, honestly, is just disobedience. He's told you to do so. So that disobedience isn't something that we're trying to use to shame you today. It's trying to do to urge you into obedience. That disobedience will only do you spiritual harm. That disobedience is why you couldn't join this church without a post-conversion baptism. If, if you're not obedient in the first step, why would you be obedient in any other step? If you're disobedient to what he's commanded, why are, you, are we so sure that you're actually following him if you don't follow his commands? If you refuse to identify yourself with him and his church in baptism, then why are you so sure that he will identify himself with you? Again, we're Baptists. Baptism's a big deal to us. And I say all that today not to shame anyone in here who that might apply to. I don't know. I've only been here a week. But if that applies to you, my goal isn't to, to make you feel worse or to, to shame you in any way. It's to urge you to obedience. To encourage you to do as he commanded, to do as he modeled. Doesn't matter how long you've been disobedient, doesn't matter how long you put it off, if you choose today to follow Christ, to do as he's commanded, that time period beforehand just doesn't matter. It's one of the glories of Christ, one of the glories of his grace toward you. Is that it doesn't matter how long you were disobedient, doesn't matter how much sin you had beforehand, the instant you turn, you're his. Now, that baptism doesn't save you. Hopefully, it's a reflection of something that's already happened. But that obedience shows that you are saved. Those who are his do as he said. So Christ followed through in baptism as his first step, just as we should. He was proclaiming his own death and resurrection as his first step in public ministry. Even before he had done the work, even before he had died and was raised, he was giving a picture of what was going to happen in his life and work. He was telling the world that through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, they could have their own resurrection. Through his passing from death to life, you, Christian, could do the same. The first step Jesus took proclaimed the final step, the finished work, and how it can be applied to you. So when he was baptized, he was revealed to be the Christ. Verses 10 and 11. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. He revealed who he is when the heavens opened. When this man came up out of the water, the heavens themselves could no longer remain the same. They opened. They were torn. Heaven had come down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And whether the people knew it or not, this is what they had been anticipating. This is what they had been looking forward to. This is what they had been hoping for. The prophets had begged for this moment. Isaiah 64, 1, which won't be on the screen, but it says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. And he did. 
He tore the heavens. He came down out of the heavens. He entered into life as a man. He was born in the flesh. He lived the perfect life. He died the death that you should have died. And he raised from the dead to promise new life for you. He rented the heavens. He came down. And we're able to see that right here at the beginning of his ministry. He tore open the barrier between heaven and his people. He entered through that break. He humbled himself coming through life on earth toward death. And the connection that Mark's making here with his language is really significant. That word that he uses in verse 10 for the heavens being torn open, he uses two times in his book. Right here in verse 10, at the baptism of Christ, with the heavens being opened and the Spirit of God coming down. And one more time at the end of the book, at the death of Christ, when the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. The first tearing shows that the presence of God has come down to us. That it has entered into our presence. And the last tearing at the end shows that we can enter into his presence. That we have access to him. Mark's connecting the beginning, the baptism, with the end, the death. You, right now, have access into this holy presence of God because of the death of Christ. Because the heavens opened and Christ came down. And because Christ died, and when he died, the veil tore and you can enter into the temple. That's what Mark is trying to tell you. That, that when the heavens opened, that's what happened. Even here at the beginning, the end is foreshadowed and Christ is revealed. That's not the only thing that happened at his baptism. The Spirit also descended. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. The heavens opened, the Spirit descended. I don't have the time to, or the ability, really, to explain the fullness of this verse. But let me just highlight one thing here, because Mark's language is once again very important. He's choosing it very carefully here to show Christ's fulfillment of God's promises. Isaiah 42, uh, verses 1 through 4, which I think will be on the screen, is what uh, Mark's alluding to here. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his love. I won't get too deep into these verses in uh, too much detail, honestly, because uh, I plan to preach through them. No too long for now. Um, that welcome, the call to worship that I have read now two weeks for you has been the exact same both weeks and it will be the exact same for the foreseeable future. I, I hope that at some point to break through all the verses that I take that from, but one of them is this. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. That's where we get that first line. To all who are bruised and burnt, Christ will not break you. What Christ is doing here is fulfilling the promises of God. He's showing the people that God's servant who bears his spirit is here to establish compassionate justice for his people to the ends of the earth. That's the point. That's why Mark makes that allusion. That's why he says that the spirit's descending on him like a dove. He's calling back to that promise of God. 
that the servant on whom God's spirit rests is going to come and establish compassionate justice for his people. And that is a comfort to them. The third thing that happens at uh, Christ's baptism, which reveals who he is, is that there's a voice from heaven which declares who he is. And a voice came from heaven, verse 11, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. After the heavens open, the spirit descends, a voice from heaven declares, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The voice of God the Father from heaven confirms what Mark has already shown, that Christ is the beloved son of God, with whom the Father is well pleased. Here we see the Trinity on full display in these verses. We, the, the Son being baptized, the Spirit descending on him, and the voice from heaven of God the Father declaring the sonness of the Son. The well-pleased love between the Father and the Son. There's so much more to unpack there. We could talk about the, the, that Trinitarian display for hours, but let me just say this. Just as the Father is well-pleased toward his Son, so is he well-pleased with those who are united to his Son. Christian, if you are in Christ, you are united to Christ. So the Father who is well-pleased with the Son is also well-pleased with you. When he looks at you, he sees the Son. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ. You have that same pleasure of God toward you. When he says that he is well-pleased, that's not a new thing. He's not saying, okay, now I'm well-pleased. He finally did what I told him to do. It's a, an eternal state. God describes himself as I am, meaning he's not changing. He simply is. And the God who simply is, simply is well-pleased with the Son. That is an unshakable is. It is an eternal is. It is a constant is. And he is well-pleased with the Son. And he is well-pleased with you if you are in the Son. That should be a promise which lets you go to sleep at night. The eternal God of all creation is well pleased with you because when he looks at you, he sees himself. He sees the Son. If you are united to the Son, you have that same pleasure of God. His disposition towards you does not change. His pleasure towards you will not waver. There will never be a moment in which he looks at you and he wonders whether he should abide you. Child of God, with you, he is well pleased. He is. So Christ is revealed as the Son at his baptism. He is consecrated for his ministry. Is consecrated for his life, so he is worthy of being followed. And the third and final reason we'll see from the text today that Christ is worthy of being followed is because he was tested. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. <clears throat> the third reason you should see Christ as worthy of following is because he was tested. He was tested by design. 
This is in verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Immediately after his baptism, the Spirit takes him and drives him out into the wilderness. He's removed from the crowds. He's removed from society. He's, and from the other gospel accounts, we know that he was fasting this entire time. On top of all of that, alone and hungry in the wilderness, Satan comes to tempt him. And yet, all of this is accomplished by the Spirit driving him out. He was sent by the Spirit to the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested. How could that possibly work? Why would that happen? If tempting and testing is something that we should avoid, why would the Spirit make Christ do that? He did it to, to show that he will pass the test. To show who he is. That through the test, through the temptation, through the trial, he comes out the other end ever stronger, ever clearer the Christ. From this we should learn that times of temptation, times of in the wilderness, times of testing, they're not always signs that you're outside of the will of God. They may be. They may be the consequences of your own sin. But when you find yourself in a place that's far from home, when you find yourself surrounded by evil, while yes, that may be a consequence of your own sin, it might just be another opportunity for the Spirit to minister to you, to bring you through it, for you to come out the other end, ever tested, ever tempted, ever tried, whatever clearer is. There's a quote that I, I know it in my head, but I could not find it this week, so I don't know who said it, but... He said, how should, I know love, how should I know I loved God if I never suffered for him? How should I know he loved me if he never saw me through suffering? That the suffering, the temptation, the trial is actually the grounds on which you're able to see his faithfulness in the midst of it. That's why Christ was driven out into the wilderness. He withstood the temptation. He showed us his own superiority, but also his compassion for those who are tempted. He didn't yield to the temptation of Satan, which, by the way, Mark never says. There's no sentence in Mark that says, and he made it. It's assumed. For Mark, it is so clear, so obvious, that Christ would never possibly falter or succumb to that temptation fail under that testing that he never even says that he passed the test. That's how sure it is. That's how obvious it was. But what he does show is that he was tempted just as you would be. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That he passed through the trial, through the temptation, and sin wasn't ever even a possibility. So matchless is his holiness. Just as in the wilderness as you could be, yet without sin. Just as tempted as you could be, yet without sin. Just as tested as you could be, yet without failing. He was tested by the design of the Spirit of God. And he showed himself worthy in passing the test. Christ is worthy of being followed because he was tested he is worthy of being followed, simply, truly, and obviously. Starting next week, we'll start to see what it looks like to actually follow Christ. What it looks like to, to be one like he is. 
But it's my hope today that you can rest easy as a follower of Christ if you are one. To know that you are not following one who is not, un, who is not worthy of being followed. There's nothing that could ever embarrass you as a follower of Christ. There's no headline that's going to surprise you. There's no tweets that are going to surface. There are no pictures that are going to be leaked. You can put the full weight of your life on him and know that he can sustain it because he's worthy. So why not follow him? Why not put the full weight of your life on him? Why not submit yourself to the only one who is worthy? He's the only one who won't embarrass you. He's the only one who won't turn you away. So if you have not followed him, then do so today. And if you are following him, then rest easy when you go to sleep at night, knowing that both the Father is well pleased with you and that he is worthy of whatever worship, of whatever praise, of whatever submission, of whatever service you could possibly give him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the time that we've had together. Thank you for the truth of your word that we've been able to see today. Thank you for your worthiness. Thank you for sending your son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let us see that and know that clearer today. Let us follow you as one who is worthy today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.